Hello, this is Peter Woolfolk. First, let me say thank you so much for being a listener. Now, I want to alert you to our shiny new podcast website located at podpage.com. However, you can go directly to the podcast site located at www.publicrelationsreviewpodcast.com. There, you can contact me through email. You can leave a voice message. You can leave a review. You can read an episode blog and frequently learn about the podcast guests. You might also want to suggest podcast topic ideas or even suggest a guest. You can also let me know if you would like to receive our podcast listener logo that you can post on your social media. So I look forward to hearing from you about our new podcast website, www.publicrelationsreviewpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Public Relations Review Podcast and have a great day. Welcome. This is the Public Relations Review Podcast, a program to discuss the many facets of public relations with seasoned professionals, educators, authors, and others. Now, here is your host, Peter Woolfolk. Welcome to the Public Relations Review Podcast and to our listeners all across America and around the world. If you have been in the public relations business for any period of time, most likely you've had some exposure to or actual involvement with crisis communications. Now, we have discussed this topic on the program, uh, most times in terms of what to do, what not to do, and how to go about it. Today, however, our guests will discuss in some detail how the McDonald's Corporation, yes, that McDonald's, handled a potentially embarrassing incident with its former CEO. Now, this incident has received national news coverage. I say potentially embarrassing because our guest today, David Johnson, CEO of Strategic Vision PR Group, detailed in a Compro newsletter article just how McDonald's went about handling this matter the right way. So joining me today from Suwannee, Georgia, suburb of Atlanta, is David Johnson. David, welcome to the program. It's great to be on. And thank you for coming. So why don't we begin by first having you give us some background on what the problem was at McDonald's with their former CEO and then how they went about getting it resolved. Definitely. Um, last year, McDonald's and their former, their former CEO, uh, Steve Easterbrook, decided to part ways. The fast food giant let Easterbrook go uh, after he admitted to a consensual relationship with an employee. And they parted ways. They terminated him. Uh, they said that there was only uh, evidence of non-physical consensual relationship. Uh, nothing intimate, so they agreed to, agreed to terminate him without cause, and he was allowed to keep his big parachute package, which was about $40 million. Well, then this year, they began hearing rumblings that there were other relationships that Easterbrook had, and they were far more <laughs> beyond just, you know, some flirty emails. Mm-hmm. They were consensual. In fact, there were intimate video calls and video texts, very much like what we've heard about with uh, Jeffrey Tubin this week with the New Yorker. And so McDonald's decided, oh no, this isn't what we agreed to. So 
first thing they decided to do was get ahead of it. They knew that the story would probably come out, that one of the persons who had leaked to them the information would probably go to the media. So McDonald's came out and said, look, we let this person go. We let him go for this reason. We have now found out and we investigated it that there was far more to the story than we were told. And what we're doing now is going after him for that buyout because there was cause. Mm -hmm. So do you have any idea how uh, that former CEO responded once they said, hey, uh, hold on a minute, we, we want that money back? Oh, of course, he's getting it. He says, no, this isn't so. But the bad thing for him is they found nude photographs of Easterbrook <laughs> that he sent on his company computer. Uh-huh. And I mean, it's in his face is there. So it's all just like, you know, like the neck down, his face is, in, his neck, his face is included. So people know it's him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's now going into litigation. And you and I know how long that can take. Mm-hmm. So where this will ultimately end, we don't know. But from a PR standpoint, from a crisis standpoint, McDonald's, the fast food giant was fast in handling this crisis, and they handled it in the right way. They did a full and transparent investigation after these allegations came out. They made a swift decision on how to act based on the findings, and they were also proactive in getting the story out first. And they shared it with their investors, they shared it with the news media, and then they announced what they were doing moving forward. That's what you always want to do. It was a one-day story, really, in the news media. Uh, of course, it's been overshadowed by you know COVID-19, by uh, the election. But the way that they handled it, they were able to defuse the situation before it became a total crisis. Now, once, as I said, once the photos came out, uh, obviously I, I hadn't heard that that part of it. But that that pretty much is it's hard to. Uh, to deny something once people have photographs of you actually committing some some misdeeds and uh, and of course on the company computer on, on top of that have they let's say begin to let's say codify this and use this for other parts of their company said here's how the right way to go about handling these uh, problems they are and they're also too as a result of this going really in-depth as far as how to handle problems of sexual misconduct, of how to report it without fear of retaliation, mm-hmm. out of fear of retribution. And they're also, of course, doing the standard thing that any corporation does with something like this, retraining all of their executives, all of their managerial positions as far as how to deal properly with accusations of sexual misconduct how to have it investigated properly, and also reviewing the policies of McDonald's as well with such situations. Because, I mean, McDonald's has a very strict policy that consensual sexual relationships are not accepted. And Easterbrook knew this. In fact, he was the one during the height of the Me Too movement who instituted the new sexual uh, misconduct policy. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he gets caught in it. The irony of ironies. So he was doing one of those things about uh, do as I say, not do as I do. (laughs) Exactly. And we find this so many times with a lot of crises of this nature with a major corporation. The CEO, the chairman of the board, they 
set the standard. This is how it's going to be handled. Mm -hmm. But lo and behold, when the scandal hits, they believe that it applied to everyone but themselves. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a bit more about uh, not not only McDonald's but others because one of the important things you alluded to is people reporting this. So obviously somebody, it must have been someone at McDonald's who knew about this and reported it again that he had these uh, consensual events. What programs should an organization set up so that people don't feel intimidated by making the calls or sending the emails or however they want to get that information to the senior staff? That's a great uh, question, and it's something that a lot of corporations grapple with how to do it Uh, because one of the biggest fears that employees have when they witness misconduct be it sexual misconduct be it financial misconduct any type of misconduct among the c-level executives Mm -hmm. is how will it be handled will be confidential will i be protected and one of the things that mcdonald's did is they set up a special program within their hr program in which the whistleblower can go anonymously and they also have an email set up that is not traceable to the sender and they can use that to file their complaint Mm -hmm. and they are assured of anonymity. And you know, I think that's important. I recall something that I did some years ago, how uh, one of the transportation companies here in uh, in Nashville wanted to get honest employee feedback about how they thought management was doing. And I uh, recognized was the best thing I can do. I mean, we wanted to do it by email, but I had a third party where they could send it to and they could codify the information and management couldn't track it back to them. Because I think you're absolutely right. Some people aren't just aren't comfortable thinking that, well, I'll just drop it in this box and uh, it'll it'll be taken care of. No, and there's been too many instances that we've heard where there's been retaliation Mm -hmm. over the years, and it might not be actually overt. It could be covert retaliation, but people's careers are stymied. They're unable to advance. They're forced out of a corporation. There has to be a comfort level, and that's the only way, too, that a major corporation is going to be able to root out this type of misconduct as well. If employees are not comfortable, if they do not feel secure, they're not going to report the misconduct. And that's a double-edged sword for corporations. Number one, the misconduct continues and it affects company morale because mm-hmm. it goes round. We all know the, the water cooler gossip, people talk about it, and it does affect morale. And the other thing is the secret usually gets out and it gets out to the media and it blows up in a way that is damaging to the corporation. Mm-hmm. Having anonymity where employees can feel safe and secure helps ease all of those problems. And it gives a peace of mind, too, for the employee who is filing the complaint. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you uh, touched on something very important that I think maybe some companies forget. As you said, they try to maybe sweep it under the rug or... Uh, or downplay it until, and then all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. Now it's a different, I mean, it's a barn fire as compared to just a, you know, just something in the trash bucket that's burning because they tried to sweep it away when they should have addressed it right up front as soon as it came out and in a way that people could respect and, uh, and, and follow and agree with. Exactly, and that's one of the biggest 
problems that any corporation has is they're not proactive. You want to get the information out. You want to control the narrative. And a lot of corporations feel, well, no one's talking about it. You know, we, we can just cover it up. We can handle it internally. Mm-hmm. That's a fatal mistake. These types of scandals do get out, especially now, too, with social media, people posting things on Facebook, on Twitter. We know it's going to get out. And then the media magnifies it. And then the corporation is facing a major crisis, not just the initial crisis, but how they try to cover it up, which mm-hmm. makes it look doubly as bad. The thing any corporation wants to do is get out in front of it and not having to be talked about how they might have covered it up or tried to prevent it from coming out. Mm-hmm. Because corporations forget the damage that is done in a situation like that is immense. It affects consumer confidence. It affects the uh, stock price of the company, but more importantly, it also affects the employees, the internal communications, Mm -hmm. and a lot of times, companies in a crisis overlook their employees, and they can't. They need to consider all their stakeholders when dealing with a crisis. Mm -hmm. You know, this recalls uh, several years ago, I believe it was General Motors that was having some problem with an ignition switch or something along those lines. And cars were either catching on fire or causing some major problem that once it happened, the drivers couldn't control and causing car crashes and even a few deaths, as a matter of fact. Right. And it came out that the engineers, some engineers knew about it, but decided they were going to again sweep it under the rug until these investigations took place and say, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> yes, somebody knew about this and you should have done something about it. And and I think General Motors paid some really, really stiff penalties and fines as a result of that. They did. And it was right when uh, Mary Barra was taking over General Motors. That's becoming right. The first mm-hmm. female CEO. And I will say this. There was a cover-up, and that had occurred prior to her becoming CEO. That's right. And her handling of the crisis was the way that any corporation wants to handle a crisis. Mm -hmm. Number one, she addressed all the stakeholders. She accepted responsibility. She did a video, and it was played for all the employees. She allowed employees to question them, her, and she accepted responsibility. Uh, She addressed the legislative oversight committees as well, the media, the vendors, the employee, and, of course, the stock holders. Mm-hmm. And that was the way you want to do it because you never want to forget any of your shareholders when you're – your stakeholders when you have a crisis. And she did it perfectly, and that is still one of the textbook examples of how to handle a crisis. Well, you know, I think somehow or another we need to get that kind of information over to some of our leaders in politics because uh, having worked in the government, I know that the the people who are there, who are career people, they want to do their jobs and do them well. Uh, It is some of those who come in, let's say, part-time or temporarily who don't want uh, bad things to get out and uh, try to find ways of covering up. And those people, those people being uh, those career employees, they will find a way to get the information to the media as long as they, they can't be traced or tra- tracked back to them because we go back to Watergate. Uh, somebody blew the whistle. I'm, I don't know how. I forget exactly the details of that. But guys were meeting in the garage at night, so forth and so on. But somebody wanted this people to know what was going on just because it wasn't right. 
Right. Well, actually, it was Mark Felt, and the reason that he did it was he was passed over as the director of the FBI when J. Edgar Hoover uh, passed away. Mm-hmm. And he was resentful, and he also was distrustful of Nixon, so he leaked the information to, of course, uh, Woodward and Bernstein, and the rest is history. But no, you're right. We always have the whistleblowers in government who blow the whistle. It might not come out right away, but it does come out right away. And part of the problem is, be it in politics or in corporations, the initial thought of many level, many high-level executives is to try to cover it up, mm-hmm. try to brush right. it aside. Right it out. <laughs> and the problem with any crisis, be it a political crisis or a corporate crisis, it usually isn't the initial crisis that brings you down. Mm -hmm. It's the cover-up that does. Mm -hmm. And that's why if you have a good, effective crisis communications plan, you can avoid that second crisis, which could be the most damaging. And I think that, uh, you know, the way people look at it is you're absolutely right that, you know, crises are going to happen and we can't always control those. But it's how you respond to it that, that determines how people are going to view you as you uh, move move forward. That is a huge issue right there. It is. And it'd be a major issue. And one of the things, too, that we see over and over again is a lot of corporations don't have a post-crisis strategy. Mm-hmm. McDonald's did with this one. They plotted, they chartered their path forward, how they were going to handle it, and they had things in place. A lot of corporations just figure, let's get through the crisis, and they don't think about the post-crisis and how to handle it and how to chart that path forward. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that a little bit because that's something that we don't hear a lot about is that, okay, well, now what happens once this crisis is over? What do we do? And uh, let's talk about the process of developing what that should be because something has to happen once the crisis is over. Somebody's job has got to be refilled, perhaps. If there's been a fire, where do we go after the fire? That sort of thing. Give us a little bit of insight as to some of those things that need to be addressed following a crisis. Oh, definitely. A lot of things need to be. The first thing you want to do is after the crisis has subsided, is to evaluate how did you handle it. Mm -hmm. Then the next step is how do we move forward from that crisis? What did we learn from it? What steps can we implement so that something like this never happens again? And also, what is our vision going forward? A lot of times we don't hear about that. The companies just figure, okay, we survived this. Go back to usual. You can't. Of course, like with McDonald's, they had to replace their CEO, but it goes beyond that. You've got to change the culture of your company as well Mm -hmm. so it doesn't happen again. You mentioned GM. That was one of the things that Mary Barra instituted so that people were not scared to announce to go and report problems that could cost the company money. The engineers were scared to do it, and the CEO at the time and other high executives just didn't want to hear about it. You've got to change the culture mm-hmm. of the company after a crisis. And so often we don't see that happen. I mean, for example, a crisis that happened here in Georgia, but it affected everyone, was the Equifax data breach. Mm-hmm. Oh and goodness, Equifax, yes. what they did, and they're still rebuilding their reputation 
all these years after this is they had to go in and clean house with their executives because it turned out a lot of their C-level executives were cashing in uh, make uh, on the stock market when all of this was coming down, mm-hmm. cashing out with their stocks. And that culture had to change. You had to bring in a new, fresh team and a new approach on how you were handling things. Well, I think what I hear here is that uh, somehow or another, there has got to be some way to, because changes, if they're going to be effective, it has to start at the top and it has to come down from on high so that people will know that we're serious about that. So somewhere along the line, there needs to be some C-suite training for senior executives on crisis communications. What happens if you if you screw this up or uh, you try to dodge it? Those kinds of what the problems can be, <clears throat> cite examples of it. And then get the buy-in from the chairman, the president, the senior vice president, those people. And once you have that buy-in, then everybody else, I would imagine, should be on board with it. And then there's a plan developed that we'll all know what it is and what to do when these things happen. Exactly. That's one of the key levels is to have a plan in place when the crisis hits. But so often we find not with your major corporations, but more your medium-sized corporations, They know they need public relations, so yes, they hire a PR firm, but the one thing that they don't think they need to consider when they're developing their PR plan is a crisis management plan. Mm -hmm. So when the crisis hits, a lot of these medium-sized companies or even a lot of these startups, for example, they're caught unprepared. They don't know who the spokesperson is going to be to address the crisis. They have never mapped out what potential crises they could uh, be facing So they're not ready to respond right away. And what happens is social media and traditional media shapes the narrative. Mm -hmm. That's why having a crisis management plan is so critical when you're doing your PR plan. Mm -hmm. You know, it sounds to me as I listen to this that uh, one of the highways for opportunity is for PR people to speak at, let's say, uh, the Chambers of Commerce. Because, I mean, it's fine for us to talk among ourselves about having a crisis communication plan and and so we know how to execute it. But it's the people who it impacts perhaps don't understand why they need to have one. And the Chambers of Commerce would be one place that we could uh, have a chance to talk to CEOs and small business people as here's what it is, here's why it's important, and here's some of the consequences that can come should you not have it or handle it correctly. Oh, you're completely correct. I mean, the Chamber of Commerce are a great place. Business associations are a great place as well. Because most of these members, I mean, they spend their time working to make their business the best that it can be, which that's what they should be doing. But they never think about when a crisis might hit, and it can hit at any time. I mean, and it doesn't necessarily even have to be something that they have done. It's something that their employee could do. And it gets magnified and placed all over the web. Mm -hmm. And that damage is complete. I mean, Papa John's, for example, they're franchises. But here in Georgia, you had uh, during the height of it when everything was happening with George Floyd, Mm -hmm. you had – we had two – they were college students working at a Papa John's uh, facility. And they thought they were being funny, and they made nooses, and they uh, posted it on Instagram. Of course, that became a crisis for Papa John's. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Papa John's, the CEO, the executive board had nothing to do with that. They were not responsible, 
but still that reflected on their company and they had to address it. That's right. And they, of course, had a plan on how to address it, but a smaller size company probably would not. Your employees, their actions, their words, their social media posts, they reflect on your company. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's the sort of thing that uh, that I think uh, could be a, a, a session for um, small businesses at chamber meetings around the country. So here, here are some of the things that can happen to you, and uh, if they do, here's how you should handle them. And also have a plan to to deal with your, your your business after that issue has been resolved. Precisely, you have to have that plan moving forward, but you also have to have a preliminary plan in place for when the crisis hits. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you are at least twenty four hours behind the curve. Mm-hmm. Well, David, you've provided us with a lot of information today on uh, not only what can happen to you, but uh, how you should go about handling it. But, And uh, just in closing, I'd like to find out if you might have some additional wisdom you'd like to pass on to our listeners. The one thing that I would say is we're seeing this more and more with social media. Social media drives the narrative in a crisis. So make sure you have a strong social media policy in place. And when you're responding to a, so, to a crisis, don't forget your social media. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. Uh, my guest today has been David E. Johnson, who is the CEO of Strategic Vision PR Group just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. I certainly want to thank him for joining us and providing you, the listeners, with all this information. And if you've enjoyed it, please give us a review, and we look forward to having you for the next episode of the Public Relations Review. This podcast is produced by Communication Strategies, an award-winning public relations and public affairs firm headquartered in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you for joining us. Hi, this is Peter Woolfolk speaking. Now, first of all, thank you so very much for listening to the podcast. Now, I am very excited to let you know that the podcast is now available on Amazon Alexa. You know the drill. Simply say, Alexa, play Public Relations Review Podcast, and she'll take it from there. And again, thank you for listening. And if you enjoy the program, please become a subscriber. Now, on to the podcast.